0: Coming up on verse, course, verse. The third time we get to do it, Sven. Let's talk jazz. Yes. (laughs) Welcome to episode 116 of Verse Course Verse. With me is Sven. I'm so mad at you for your pick on this episode. It should have been mine. Knutson, Svend, <laughs> how are you doing tonight?
1: I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah? I can't believe that we let my pick sit out that long without... At least I don't think we've even mentioned the guy.
0: We did in our first one because we did... Mm. The people that grew up in Idaho would consider the the U of I version of him. (laughs) That's right. We did that. I do. Yeah. yeah. But I'm I'm fantastic. (laughs) We should have thought it through and our first two should have been the first person I picked and the guy you picked this time. That should have been the first two. That would have made sense. They would have paired well considering geography and i feel like influence wise because of the geography those two for you and i are pretty massive
1: yeah for sure
0: we get sock jazz today this is one of my favorite episodes to do every year it's one of my favorite episodes to edit too because it's You get the rights to most of the stuff, and you have all this incredible music that you get to just wade through and pick what to throw in and out of the episode. It's very fun. Nice. The numbers aren't terrible for these episodes. They're not great. But I think this is one of those, uh, what do they say, three for them, one for you? kind of things oh are you saying that there's not enough jazz heads that listen to us not yet we need there to be i tell you what this year's gonna help because we've got three maybe four episodes they're gonna help us out a lot including a listener supported and Mm -hmm. an interview for a jazz album that's going to drop right after this episode
1: Which you and I already did. The timeline of how we do things just, I know it messes with your head. It messes with my head. It's very screwed. Everyone listening is just like, I don't get it. What's so hard to keep track? It's because we do things out of order (laughs) sometimes Yeah. then have to put them back in order. And then when we talk about things, have to remember whether
0: you already know about those things or not, listeners. Exactly. Some of your guests have to go climb a mountain or something. Fucking weird Jeez, like that. I cannot believe it. I, I followed
1: on Instagram the whole trip. Part of it, I was jealous. Part of it was just like, you're fucking crazy. You're awesome. Yeah. You're awesome. But like, that's nuts. And It's a little nutty. Brave.
0: So yeah, we've got a, a couple interviews I would definitely consider jazz. One that I would, is partly jazz. We've got a lot of jazz this year. I feel very lucky. I love covering jazz. I always will. We said once, Sven We were talking about country. This is, I think, in the last finale. Mm -hmm. You said something that I think is absolutely spot on, which is that you can't really understand country enough to really honestly enjoy it until you're a little older. Yeah. Until you have those life experiences where you get it. Yeah. Even though you and I, when we were young, we loved jazz. I think it's another one of those genres that you can't really get until you're a little bit older. Yeah, I I think that's a in
1: general. I think there's so many different parts of jazz too that you could tag something along with that, like until you're older. And then there's like the kind of jazz that for people that play instruments and play jazz, like they're the only ones that are gonna like this kind of jazz. And then there's jazz that's danceable, like all the swing dancers are gonna love it. Then there's jazz that's mm. super vocal, technical, and... You're going to get all your voice people. But for sure, all of it takes a level of maturity. Not that you can't get there at a young age. It's just Mm -hmm. hard because there's so many. I mean, when you're young, you're supposed to just kind of be, I feel like, grabbing at everything and testing everything out, figuring out where you land, what you like. But as you get older and you've kind of figured some of those things out and then you can really dig in. Jazz is a genre that I feel is, it pays off the more you dig in. Yes. At the first glance, it can seem meh. And then the more you dig, the cooler it gets.
0: I like that. I like that jazz is such a broad genre that you can choose based on what you're in the mood for. Oh yeah. Sometimes you might want something frenetic that you just to kind of drive you crazy and challenge you and try to figure out what the hell is going on. And sometimes you want something that I would akin to one of the artists we're going to talk about tonight that suddenly there's a resolution that just gives you huge chills. That's the kind of jazz. I mean, I, I like all kinds of jazz, but that's the kind of jazz that now that I'm a little bit older, yeah, I really, really dig. You know my favorite thing about
1: jazz? In a way, it's kind of like the chameleon of genres. Almost mm. anything, you could be like, yep, that's jazz. There's players out there that are like rock guitar players that play some of the jazziest shit. And there's things that I listen to that I'm like, I don't know what genre this is. It would definitely be show up in like the jazz bin at a record store but based on like instrumentation or just you know there's other cues in the music you're like this is a rock album this is a soul album this is jazz is so fluid that like just about anything you can call just about anything jazz train whistle going by that you know (laughs) that could be jazz
0: absolutely Three episodes ago, Evil and I did a segment and then an interview with Nick Lee on Moontooth. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that we asked him about is their first song on their album, Crux, is called Trust. And it's this extremely heavy metal song. But then three-fourths in, they start this jazz funk breakdown. Mm -hmm. You can catch it in any music. You know, you and I, something else that we might touch on later this year. I don't know. Maybe I have to edit this out. Maybe not. And then you can get into like jam bands. You and I, when we were into jazz, we were also heavily into like Dave Matthews band because when they play live, they totally go jazz. Yeah.
1: Jam bands are like that perfect example of like the chameleon thing I was talking about where there's so much improvisation happening. And to me, that's one of the core aspects of jazz. You don't have to improvise for it to be jazz, but in a lot Mm -hmm. of jazz music, there's a lot of improvisation. That's exactly what jam bands do. It's like using your art, your instrument to communicate with the other instrumentalists or vocalists, the other musicians you're playing with. And it's it's a language that both the performers and the audience get to participate in. Jam bands helped ease me into really digging into jazz more. Yeah. Like the gateway.
0: We will touch on more as we go. A lot of this episode, especially the first half for you and I, is going to be about our history with jazz. We'll probably talk about some great educators. Yeah. uh, Some people that probably if it wasn't for them, we would not be in the musical space we are. This gives us a great opportunity to touch on that. Before we do, we got to get to the most important part of the night. Sven, what are you drinking? I did something. Oh. I did something. I think it is an old fashioned
1: Can't fool you.
0: It's frothy. Is it frothy?
1: It's a little frothy. I was very aggressively shaking this. (laughs) What I like to do, because I'm too lazy to make simple syrup, is I just put granulated sugar and like a tablespoon of water in my shaker with ice, and then put in Mm -hmm. my bourbon and my bitters, and then I just shake the living crap out of it so that it will hopefully dissolve
0: all that sugar, because I don't want to... Make simple syrup. Any person that's a cocktail person that says they've never done that is a lying piece of shit. <laughs> I very frequently forget to make simple syrup and it's here comes Friday night and like shit. Well, I'm not going to make simple syrup and let it cool off and shit. Yeah, that's exactly what you have. That's to do. what you
1: do. I've seen bartenders do it. So I figured it's legit enough that I'd be mad if a bartender did it.
0: <laughs> what uh,
1: bourbon do you have? This is just some Woodford. I say just some. Woodford's good. That's great. That's fantastic bourbon. That's kind of my standard. That's my house bourbon. That's the bourbon you drank
0: on our first episode.
1: Even if I didn't remember, I would probably guess it (laughs) because it's what I almost always have around.
0: I am still boring. I am drinking water.
1: Yeah, you're on your 30-day thing.
0: It's actually more of a 37 day. Lent, but you started before Lent and you're not Catholic. I'm not at all. I just had one of those weeks where it, like nothing bad happened or anything. I was kind of a little too hungover for my age. And I was like early on a Saturday. I'm like, what a, What am I doing? I remember here? the like, finale. Yeah. <laughs> I- <laughs> that was a three day hangover. <laughs> but that's to be expected. I'm okay with that. But when it's just some random who cares weekend on a saturday (laughs) it's like oh well maybe we need to cool off do you ever have cool off periods or have you got it pretty much figured out like i had
1: covid forced you to stop yeah every now and then i don't know that i've intentionally gone like a 30 something day i'll take a week off here and there sometimes it's more of a slow down i have a few beers almost every single night so there'll be times where i'll be like all right this month i'm only no beers no nothing on Mm -hmm. the weekdays couple on Friday and Saturday night or something I haven't really yeah. put a lot of effort into I, I need to that's kind of one of my things this year is not just alcohol but just health in general self-care over the past two years and this year I feel like I need to kick it up a notch push myself a little harder to put health first
0: that's where it stemmed from because I'm really not I'm not worried about the whole alcoholic thing or or whatever it is more of a health thing it's more of a let's just make sure I'm being healthy it feels my, good to reset
1: like <laughs> my, my seven-year-old lectured me today so i'm probably <laughs> coming up on a cutback period he's like dad you know it's not good to drink too many beers you should <laughs> you should try to only drink like three beers a night
0: my daughter did the thing for a while where every time i had any sort of alcohol in my hand she's like you're drunk you're just <laughs> drunk we have got to get to it we've got a lot to get into I just Think uh, so we'll take a break tell we'll them right it's back weird. We are back.
1: All right. So my pick that we've been dancing around through the mm-hmm. whole I- <laughs> intro again, like idiots. Um, even though everybody knows
0: who it is. I mean,
1: it's in the title. You guys know who. It's we're just a fun game. That should be our know. drinking game from yeah. now
0: on. Is the first person that actually says the person in the episode just for shits and giggles has to drink. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so say his so name. I, I'll just <laughs> drink now because I'm about
1: to, you know, this this is somebody that if you're listening from the Northwest and if you're listening from Idaho, hi, Idaho friends, then you're very familiar with this gentleman. Better be. Who, yeah, you better be. <laughs> I don't know. I guess there are people that have lived under that rock long enough that they don't recognize the name Gene Harris. This man has been a part of this community for For, well, since like 96-ish. We'll get into that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Gene Harris is the amazing pianist that I want to talk about tonight. Yeah. This man was born not in Idaho. He's actually from Benton Harbor, Michigan, Mm -hmm. uh, where he was born in 1933. He began his musical journey at a really young age. I think he was four years old when he latched on to his parents' boogie-woogie records yeah. and started trying to teach himself to play boogie-woogie on the piano. And that definitely influenced his style throughout his life, that and all of the gospel and soul music that he was getting at church. So from a mm-hmm. young age, he was surrounded by music. He made it his life, even when he, he joined the army, uh, in the 50s, 51 to 54, yeah. 1951 to 1954, he served in the army and played music every opportunity he got.
0: Yeah, he was in the band during the Korean War. That's which right. I didn't know right. until and, studying for this. That's very cool. And you
1: know, that's actually sidebar. I thought about doing that right out of high school was joining the uh, two that I was thinking about. One was just the National Guard Band, mm-hmm. which is really easy to audition for in Idaho. <laughs> you can get in. And I didn't have the chops or the discipline. I shouldn't say I didn't have the chops. I didn't have the discipline yeah, to be bullshit. in the Marine Band. Discipline, I believe. <laughs> I wasn't gonna do Marine Band. Instead of both of those, I went and auditioned Disney Cruises and Muzak.
0: Did you do... You just did jazz band, right? You didn't do like drumline or anything like that in high school, did oh, you? Oh,
1: yeah, I did. You did? That was my scholarship in uh, college at BSU. That's was, right. That's right. Yeah, I marched uh, Blue Thunder drumline. I did the whole marching band thing. I did jazz band, did the jazz combo. I promise we're going to get back to Gene Harris here in a second.
0: I mean, this is all... But talking
1: jazz education, which will be a big part of what we're going to talk about here in this segment. But I had a teacher that was really awesome. I think I've mentioned uh, Eric Jensen before on the podcast, and he started a jazz improv class.
0: I was in a class from him, too. I, I took music theory from him. Yeah. And yeah, he was amazing. He changed my whole outlook on music. Absolutely awesome person. Anyway, back to
1: Gene Harris. After the Army, he formed a band, The Three Sounds, which... Actually, originally was going to be the four sounds, but they abandoned their saxophone player. They had a tenor sax player, and in 1956, they decided to just keep it as a trio, which I kind of like. And this is me, a saxophone player, a tenor sax player saying this. Like, I'm kind of glad that they just stuck to bass, piano, and drums because... Mm-hmm. When I think Gene Harris' trio, that combo, is what I immediately picture. Um, yeah. It just brings back so the memories. Um, That's
0: a good name for a
1: uh, jazz trio,
0: too. The three, three sounds. sounds. Yeah. That's so good.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Each hold their own. So it was Andy Simpkins on bass, and the drummer was Bill Dowdy. Mm-hmm. Both- Who's awesome. Yeah. Incredible, incredible musicians. I mean, and they gigged and recorded for, like, 15 years. They were recording consistently for Blue Note all the way up until about 73, and that's when they decided to call it quits.
0: Um, the trio split mm-hmm. up, and... Do you know Simpkins toured with Sarah Vaughn for, like, a long time? I did not. That tells you how good Andrew... That All three of them. That just tells you how good... like. Bill Dowdy went on, too, to get, I think he, like, Anita O'Day did a bunch of stuff with the three sounds, and I think he toured with her, and then, like, Lester Young, who Lester Young, Lester Young is a name of names, but all three of them could have done really anything they wanted.
1: Hey, you're going to get to talk about Lester Young in a little bit here, too.
0: Mm, There's some crossover there, huh? There sure as shit is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, where were we? Like, three sounds, 15 years of incredible music on blue note label
0: just great great music man yeah
1: and i and i guess i should point out like i haven't talked much about gene's style he definitely i mean he is at the core he's a blues player Mm -hmm. gene is this blues monster not that he doesn't hold his own with i mean he got into some bebop he plays some funk the guy can eat up a real book for all my jazz heads out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's not that he shies away from anything there. And for anyone that doesn't know a real book, it's like the book, the standards of all the jazz America. standards yeah. all yeah. bound together in one. And I think now you you have to like kind of get it under the table. I don't know what you could it's like actually published and maybe, I don't know.
0: Well, now you just go online.
1: There you go. Read it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it,
1: he's a very bluesy piano player. And there's something just so soulful about the way he plays and the way that he moves into any tune, any chart. Yes. Um,
0: Confidence. So, yeah. He is so confident. You and I have both been lucky enough to see him play. Older ages, but still, it didn't matter. Like, there's this confidence about him. And not a... He, and I might be jumping ahead here, but what I love about him, there's a few things I love, but one of the things I love is that most insanely talented jazz musicians have this, not that they're doing it on purpose, but they have this air of superiority when they're up there and they're playing and this Mm. look of either deep concentration or flippant I could do this in my sleep yeah Gene Harris looked so fucking happy and confident Mm -hmm. up there he
1: always would just he'd be just turn and grin at the audience I remember that getting getting the smile like if you're if you're watching him play live you get that Gene Harris smile yeah and you could yeah you could tell that that was especially in his trio that was where he was supposed to be that's sitting in front of a keyboard with a couple other dudes making some music Oh, there's so many stories <laughs> but i want to just blast through the highlights yeah. of his life and then dig back into some more music so in in 1973 he was kind of left to pursue his own solo career and he did mm-hmm. that for only like it was short four years and then he decided i'm gonna retire
0: yeah he got he tried to do kind of the more uh what poppy jet like yeah. almost soul he, funk he got into like it's the stuff that
1: it's some of my favorite albums are from this time in his life because yeah, I mean you know me and how much I love Herbie Hancock mm, yeah and there was a lot of like there was a lot of that kind of funk like Headhunters yeah. style funk that he kind like of dabbled in a special in. way um, his
0: '76 album was very much like that yeah and I think he had one in like '77 too that was pretty similar
1: there's like Astral Signals and. Yeah, we'll get, we'll, yeah. Gotcha. So, yeah, he he retired. And when he retired, out of all the places for a black man who was a jazz musician to retire, all the places that a man who wrote the song, Don't Call Me Rapper, Whitey, (laughs) and the word in the title is not rapper, it's the word I can't say, (laughs) it starts with an N, and he decides to retire. Good old Boise, Idaho. He does. The hell was he thinking? But to all of, at least, our benefit here in this community, I myself included, that's, I think, the...
0: Yeah. Could you... I couldn't... This is probably something we could have asked people in Idaho if I would have thought about it that used to be close to him, teachers that we knew and things like that, but do you know why he chose Boise? Could you find anything that he says?
1: I couldn't find anything published, quotes, or anything. I do remember it was a fundraiser that I attended when I was really young and he and his wife, as part of the program for the evening, they spoke a few words because it was something that his endowment was, was participating in. It, some, I, it, it was like a scholarship fundraiser type of thing. Mm-hmm. They talked a lot about like how much they loved the community and giving back to the community and a little bit about why, but it was very much... Whether it really was why they moved here or just, like, the kind of stuff that you say at those functions and those fancy dinners where it's just, like, it's livable and, you know, it's a great place to... All the reasons that Boise became, like, one of the fastest growing (laughs) cities in the last few years. It's comfortable. You can walk around. There's actually a nightlife. There's good food. There's, you know... It's a good community. It's a good community. It's safe. It's quiet. You get the small town feel, but you still have enough amenities and activities. And maybe the university was a decent draw as well. But 1977, I'm trying to think, like Boise State University was still the college. It was still like Boise or junior college or something. I don't know. It was still probably really small. So I don't know that that would have been a draw.
0: I wonder if it was something similar to what happened with Lionel Hampton and U of I. Why don't you come here and help us out with education to try to get jazz to be a thing? We got your back will help with the shows and all that stuff maybe it's something like that but that's just that's me just speculating i think
1: that happened after he'd been here for a couple of decades and then the university (laughs) realized they'd been like sleeping on on this giant yeah yeah. because i mean he got bored with retirement in 84 he did a recording that was released in 84 with milt jackson Mm vibraphone vibraphone player um soul route so 84 he like came out of retirement still lived here release that and then connect it up with uh, Ray Brown bassist and Hooked up with Concord Records, which is where he then released, like his later on in life stuff, all got released.
0: Twenty two albums later.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and and this was finally like you know like his own stuff. He was the mm. band leader. He it was it was like a solo. I'm gonna go
0: ahead and retire. No, never mind. Yeah. I don't feel like it. I'm gonna cut twenty two more albums. Twenty. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> in f- in fucking twelve years.
1: And I think that's when in 1996. Boise State University was like, hey, (laughs) help us out, Gene. Yeah. So Gene Harris uh, started this endowment in the mid 90s. I think its main purpose was to provide scholarships for jazz musicians, jazz music students at Boise State University. And then a couple years after they founded the endowment the same group then decided to form the Gene Harris Jazz Festival mm-hmm. which is how i first really got turned on to gene yeah. this is probably what's going to eat up most of the stories that i have and what i want to say and because it was such a short time that gene got to experience his own festival mm-hmm. in person only two years. He passed away in 2000. So the, fe- the first year of the festival was 1998. Yeah. It was definitely the, like the first three years were like the strongest years because you felt the full presence of Gene and the weight behind it. It
0: ended with him performing. Oh,
1: yeah. And so that was that was like I got to see him or anyone here. Most of us that were music students, you and I
0: saw him together,
1: yeah. At least saw him once a year, and if not twice at that festival, it was always the closing concert. He, you know, was the headliner, but then early on in the week, that was usually like the Saturday night, Wednesday or Thursday, somewhere earlier in the week, because the festival was like a week long, and earlier in the week, like there'd be a week night that they would call club night where he and uh, like a bunch of amazing other artists would just go into these small like bars around town downtown Boise and just play Mm -hmm. these tight little venues yeah and you just get to hear some of these monster jazz musicians like because of Gene Harris and because of the jazz festival I got to hear in person guys like Michael Brecker uh Arturo Sandoval got to listen to him but also got like workshopped by him guys like poncho sanchez uh i think the first time i saw james Mayer. there's like don't forget
0: the woman you wanted to marry
1: <laughs> oh I'll never forget diana miss <laughs> <laughs> crawl yeah um
0: and uh gene's daughter too didn't gene's daughter do do possibly. it one year with him i feel like i saw her perform with her dad yeah jean's daughter nikki ended up being a vocalist in the industry she ended up like doing backing for madonna and people like that but she was a great singer too i know that i've seen her perform so i feel like it had to have been with Gene.
1: well that would make sense mm-hmm. but i think you know what What an opportunity for a small community like this. Yeah. How else would you hear in town a lot of these guys that would come through, guys and girls? These men and women of jazz that were like at the height of their careers would all come together for this jazz festival.
0: In one of the smaller, quote unquote, big cities in the Northwest that had no business having good... I mean, this is... Gene Harris would... We had this really, really cool old hotel in downtown Boise called the Mm Eidenhaw. And Gene Harris would frequent there. And it's seriously like, you're getting the quality of a Kansas City of a St. Louis, you're getting that quality of jazz in Boise, Idaho, which, you know, had no business having that good of jazz. And it was just all thanks to this one amazing piano player that moved there and started educating, not even on purpose, just just from being there and playing, he was educating kids like us that were like, holy shit.
1: This is like coming full circle back to where we started with how you kind of have to grow up a little bit to appreciate jazz the way gene played especially by then by like the late 90s it was less about how many notes and he always was kind of like this it was less about how many notes you could play and more about picking the right ones
0: he was beautiful
1: yeah just knowing how to read the crowd and read his band I mean, sometimes it was a run of notes. Sometimes it was just chords. Yeah. For me, one of my favorite things about listening to Gene Harris play is to me, he was the king of quotes. In a live set, in the middle of his solos, he would pop in other jazz standards. He would quote, like, the mm-hmm. head of, you know, like a Gershwin piece, or like he would throw in little bebop ahead or something just to see if you were paying attention i think you know not not just the audience but his band too because then you'd see like the other people on stage kind of chuckle and light up and and like Mm -hmm. watching that stuff happen was when i started to realize that jazz was this form of communication that i i wanted to master and be a part of because they were like telling inside jokes on stage without using words you'd hear one guy do something and the other guy had to answer back and this guy would quote this tune and someone would quote something else and they, they start watching guys just like clown around but you know you're in like some black tie jazz club kind of a <laughs> setting it was an amazing experience to as a teenager mm-hmm. and uh the festival's still going Gene Harris Jazz Festival is it's still it's not quite the level that it was when Gene was you know at the helm he died of a kidney disease unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. Like I think it just kind of, it came out of nowhere and that was in 2000. So he was, he was super young. I mean, 66 is insanely young, I feel like. And he was nowhere near, I was, I'm super bummed that he's not, there wasn't more. I I would have loved to seen kind of like how much further, the festival would have grown how much more gene could have impacted you know not just me not just this community but it was starting to gain some national attention and and the the guys that would travel in to play the festival i think all left with a, a pretty amazing experience and a bunch of stories to tell about this little ass town that mm-hmm. had a lot more culture than i think any of us would have expected
0: well you weren't kidding uh i'll cut this out but man the gene harris jazz festival has gone downhill
1: yeah it's pretty sad it's pretty much all contained on campus now like
0: the, and it's looks like it's just school performances and that's it
1: yeah yeah i think that's they still a, that's have a fucking bummer man they don't have all the big mainliners coming in anymore. I think it's uh you know, the that's local what guys the, do it. And
0: that's what got us into like not that we weren't into jazz, but that's what really like watching adult performers, it's it's the same as like when we'd go we got to go to the Sun Valley Jazz Fest. Yeah. But the times where where our teachers would actually let us go and watch not just the classes and things like that, but the actual performers. And you saw this very adult themed, you felt like you could have gone and grabbed a martini at the bar. And you, these people were just lighting each other up and hooping and hollering. And you're like, holy fuck, this is jazz. And it's the greatest thing that I've ever heard in my life.
1: What's nuts is there's, they always did a show. It wasn't the last night, but it was the second to last night. Friday and Saturday night concerts were always at a big venue, one of their arenas mm-hmm. in town. The Friday night show, they always incorporated students from... Because the whole week leading up to the weekend was a lot of student yeah. workshops as well as competitions. Student, like bands, student choirs, student... comp. Yeah, it was competitions and coaching and things like that. And they would kind of this high school's band or this kid or you know so they would find students to play like this band of it was all pros and you got like this 12 year old drumming and it was like stuff like that that made me want to like get better made me want to learn more about jazz made me want to learn more about music then gene was always the one that like closed the night And then the Saturday night concert was just like his trio and they'd have special guests, like kind of guests with them and stuff, right? So being a part of that and getting coached by those guys and then getting to watch them play Mm -hmm. and then coming back next year and trying to be like, okay, this year maybe I'm going to get picked to play. That was the first time I ever got to stand in front of like 3,000 people, like blow my face off (laughs) and and, like have so much fun doing it. All thanks to this this amazing piano player named Gene Harris.
0: Yeah, this was fun to study for. I do. I really just love his music, and it's not that I don't like it. His mid-70s stuff actually isn't really my thing. Like his 72 to 76 stuff, it's great. It's just not so much my thing as his straight-up jazz.
1: See, and I'm the opposite. I know. As much as I've just gotten done talking about how bluesy he was and all these awesome like jazz festival experiences and stuff, my two favorite records of his are, well, my, my favorite one is Tone Tantrum. If you haven't heard Gene Harris, but you kind of like some like soul and some funk and mm-hmm. you're not ready for like bebop, Tone Tantrum, you'll recognize the first track. It's a little song called As, written by Stevie Wonder. <laughs> yeah. But Gene Harris, holy crap, he didn't sing on it. A guy named Ralph Beecham, who I don't think did anything else held his own with some Stevie Wonder vocals. I mean, mm-hmm. he sang, like, that's a hard-ass song yeah. to sing. Anything Stevie is hard yeah. to sing. But Ralph Beecham, like, kills it on this. And Gene Harris just owned the solo. He owned this song. And, like, I was talking about how he's totally my king of quotes. About five minutes into the song, in Gene Harris's solo, he drops the melody from Gershwin's Summertime fits it into his solo and I about lost it when I heard that happen you know like my head about exploded (laughs) so that's an awesome record the other one is called Astral Signal and this one is the one that to me is very like it has a lot of things going on but there's a few tracks on here that feel very much like Herbie Hancock's like Headhunters stuff it's a little experimental but not quite you'll hear the difference like Gene doesn't quite I love Gene and I don't mean this in the way that it's probably going to sound, but Gene didn't have quite the grasp on harmony that Herbie Hancock.
0: You're—it's hard. You're, like Herbie Hancock's one of the yeah, masters you're of like, like chord voicing. Exactly. You're talking like one of the creators of it. Yeah,
1: and so Gene doesn't get quite as far out with his chords going off into like the nether. Uh, He keeps it pretty close to home base. You can still recognize chords. Well,
0: Gene Harris is one of the most, and I think this is what made the education so great, is he is one of the most accessible jazz performers I've ever heard. Yeah, You can be a jazz novice and you could have gone to watch him play and thought it was absolutely beautiful.
1: Yeah. When he cover someone you almost forget that it's cover he does green river fogarty wrote this but when you hear gene play it on astral signal it's like a whole nother song
0: yeah he has a way of just killing it making things his own yeah getting prepared for this i listened to a ton of the three sounds they have like fucking 25 albums in the 50s my favorite thing that i found though was this npr concert in 1988, and it was just called Gene Harris on on piano. I think I saw that on YouTube. It was with the three. It was with Andy Simpkins and Bill Dowdy, and they played. Yeah. So he was a huge Gershwin guy. Like every every jazz player is a huge Gershwin <laughs> every piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they played "Someone to Watch Over Me," "Lady Be Good." Uh, they played "Georgia on My Mind," "Try a oh. Little Tenderness." It is insane. It is so good.
1: And every single one of those has that good. Like you can just on it with some laid back blues Mm -hmm. i think you can always tell when it's gene harris too because there's a few things that he likes to do that are very bluesy that are like no one would lay it on that thick except gene harris
0: (laughs) gene harris was the man he was possibly biggest jazz influence for me just from going up in the area what what does a white boy like me have any business of being able to learn jazz that close to home and i got to super lucky
1: got to yeah. dude opened up so many doors for so many of yes. us
0: yeah that's a good one that's a feel-good one that makes me happy let's take a break and then let's talk about someone whose story is not quite so happy this is <laughs> this is a very dl and spend episode if i've ever heard one
1: right yeah <laughs> right i just start us off now you're gonna come
0: bring us down <laughs> yep <laughs> we'll, we'll take a break we'll be right back Okay, time for a not-so-fun one, but, yeah, but amazing person. For this year, I picked not only an amazing singer, but somebody who I will admit, I knew that she was a massive, massive influence. I didn't realize just how much of a pioneer she was until I studied for this. Tonight, I am going to be talking about Eleonora Fagan, a.k.a. Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday.
2: Take my lips, I want to lose them. Take my i never use them.
0: The first thing I love about when we're talking about Billie Holiday, somebody with these old roots, she was born in Philadelphia in 1915 which we are getting old enough in history to the point of there's a lot of things in her story that aren't she'll say one thing history says another there's no real great answer i mean it's it hasn't even been proven who her father was fully that's the sort of stuff that we're dealing with here which is fun it's fun to me <laughs> you are a twisted man yeah some historians will say that her you know her uh, her father left young age he was a drunk this and that. She says that her father ended up prisoner of war. It's all over the place. Her mom was doing the best she could. This is the 20s. This is the 30s. They are black. Life is not great in America for them. She was a huge troublemaker when she was a child, massive troublemaker. And when I say troublemaker, this is 20s. Right, 30s troublemaker. Like she was singing blues on the playground, you know, which is the the devil's devil's music. music. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, she's she's there
1: (laughs) corrupting all of her schoolyard friends,
0: exactly dirty songs. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Well, these
1: days you're gonna start dancing and then it's all over,
0: (laughs) exactly. She's a bit of a troublemaker since her mom's not really doing that well with the whole parenting thing, she's living with her grandma. According to Billie Holiday, her grandma actually had a bunch of health issues and ended up dying in her arms. Like one night... Oh, geez. Uh, Yeah, one night her grandma was... She knew. She knew she was going to pass. She's like, "Will you just hold me tonight. And she ends up passing away in her arms. Billie Holiday, uh, or at this time she's still Eleanor, she ends up in a school. It's called the Good Shepherd's School for Colored Girls. That's what it's called. So Billie Holiday... I'll keep calling her Eleanor until her actual name is changed to Billy. but she just had a really, really bad fucking childhood. This school is about what you'd expect from a school in that part of the country at that time, a lot of assaults going on women there but you know women can assault women and there are weird rules there like if you get in trouble you have there's a red dress that you wear so it's like this weird scarlet letter thing going on yeah all these weird punishments and stuff like that she was there for nine months until eventually her mom came and got her out her mom and her had this very off and on parental relationship of i think between billy kind of being a bad kid quote unquote bad kid and her mom just trying to You know, her mom just trying to be a black woman in the 20s and the 30s. Trying to survive, right? Exactly. Yeah. Billy's living with her mom. And at this point in time, they're in a poor neighborhood. One night, her mom comes home to find that their next door neighbor is trying to rape her, trying to rape Eleanor. And her mom gets a cop. They break in before anything can happen. This being the era that it is, she kind of ends up getting in trouble. Uh, she basically gets, not basically, she gets sent back to that same school mm. for another year for quote unquote, her protection. Jesus. Just really fun stuff. <sighs> she gets out of that school when she's 12, she starts doing a cleaning service. She start essentially she's cleaning up rich people's houses and she fucking hates it. Billie Holiday was not a shit taker. Billie Holiday was not... She was that little kid on the playground singing the blues, as it, which you didn't do back then. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. So the idea of cleaning up somebody else's nice house, she did not fucking like that. She's already drinking, smoking pot, doing all that stuff. You know, she's she's a rebel, man. She's a rebel. Hating the cleaning, she decides what she's going to do. And it's funny because... I did an episode where I studied a lot on Ronnie Spector, who did a lot of the exact same things. So Ronnie Spector wanted to be a star no matter what. And when her and her cousins, who eventually became the Ronettes, first were trying to get discovered, they were in the Bronx. They were trying to sing in clubs, but they couldn't get in clubs for singing. So they would lie and say they were dancers. Yeah. And then the- Hey,
1: I think I see where you're
0: going. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm jumping
1: ahead in my mind.
0: No, no, no. You're- The exact same thing happened with Ronnie Spector that happened with Billie Holiday. Mm. Billie Holiday, she ends up getting this dancing gig in Harlem. She's 14 years old. But she's very, she's a very mature 14 and she has developed. Unfortunately for a kid that young, she looks a lot older than she is. <laughs> she gets this gig at this nightclub in Harlem. She goes to the piano player and the piano player starts playing and, and sees what she can do. And she starts trying to dance and she can't dance for shit. <laughs> and the piano player is like, can you at least sing? Bingo. Exactly. Billy sings what she says in her autobiography is the whole crowd is just crying in their beers by the time that she's done. She says that her and the piano player make over a hundred dollars in tips that first night, which is an insane amount of money back then. Yeah. Yeah, It's the thirties. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's it. She's sold. She's done. This is it. This is what I'm doing. hundred bucks in tips? Shit. Hell yeah. By the age of 17, I mean, this is three years later. She's a regular in a bunch of prominent clubs. She's playing all over Harlem. She's playing in, everywhere in New York City, which is a big fucking deal for somebody that young. John Hammond, who's one of the biggest producers there will ever be. You name a yeah. group, you name an artist, John Hammond's produced them.
1: Yeah. He was the name. This is like the Willy Wonka of music. Like, this is her golden (laughs) ticket, right? (laughs) I mean, it's clever. Sorry, that's a cheesy analogy. (laughs) No, that was (laughs) That was fantastic.
0: John Hammond hears her and, of course, flips out. This is like nothing that he's ever heard before. I'll get into it more later, but there's a style that she has that is just unique. He completely loves her. He brings like random jazz biggies to go see her all the time. Like her big um, influences were Louis. Ar- Everybody's influences is Louis Armstrong. It's yeah. just everybody. I don't even know if we're ever going to have to do Louis Armstrong's fan because he's going to get brought up in every single <laughs> jazz episode. <laughs> some things he would take
1: a long yeah he would take a long time i don't know that we have
0: that's like a three episode or i mean you could do one whole episode just on actually no you know songs (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's bringing people like this like benny goodman in and everybody loves her so he does start to record he's one of her first recordings ever is with benny goodman (laughs) biggest thing that stands out with her, what was not a big thing at this time yet was jazz vocalists. Typically, it was somebody like a Louis Armstrong, you know, somebody that played an instrument and then sang. Yeah. It was more of a band leader, a big renowned just singing jazz vocalist, not only just singing, but improv. Yeah. The whole scatting thing, as much as we think that it was, it wasn't a big thing back then. And so when people heard her doing this, they flipped out. They loved This is who I have so to blame. Much. This is who you have to blame. it's just yes. joking. <laughs> oh,
1: man. That was the shittiest <laughs>
0: remark ever. I take it back. That ain't getting edited out. <laughs> I love so, jazz vocals. Some of them are amazing. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I do have to edit that <laughs> Please. <laughs> out. Please. Uh, by age 20, she signed to Brunswick Records, which is not a huge record company, but it's a record company. She records with Teddy Wilson, who's an incredible piano player. The industry is floored by this recording, completely in love with it. Her improvising, it's just, like I said, it's something vocalists have never done. This is when she comes out with What a Little Moonlight Can Do, and that's her first popular song. That's her first song that hits the charts that people start hearing. what a little moonlight Right after this is when she starts playing with Lester Young.
1: Ah, my saxophone buddy. There's our
0: saxophone I knew he was making another appearance tonight. Considering that they were, I mean, for all good and all the bad, they were probably best friends through most of their careers. The first sentence of her Wikipedia is uh, nicknamed Lady Day by her friend and music partner, Lester Young. Depressed. Yeah, they, they stuck together... God, their chemistry was just off the charts musically. Right after she's playing with Lester Young, who's also playing with the same guy, they start doing stuff with Count Basie. This is before big band is really a huge thing. This isn't like Count Basie wasn't Count Basie yet. Mm. So they start touring with her being the singer for the Count Basie tour. And this is not great, pretty poor conditions. It's not like they're making a ton of money, but she's growing in popularity and at this point, she records a song from the year before's Porgy and Bess, Summertime. <laughs> I would think that, with the exception of the radio hit of our age, Sublime, <laughs> that that's probably the most famous rendition of Summertime. Summertime. I mean, Ella sang it too which is there's something else we're going to end up talking about is the whole... Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ella and Billy, Ella versus Billy, uh, all that kind of stuff. Because, yes, at this point, there is another woman singer that is coming up and rapidly becoming huge. And yeah that, of course, is the Ella Fitzgerald, who she's singing with the Chick Webb Band. So you have Ella with the Chick Webb Band, and then you have Billy with Count Basie. And they just found themselves in direct competition, even though they are such different singers. Yeah. Complete opposite singers. Ella is just this bigger than life. What is it that John Lennon said? I'm an artist. You put a fucking tuba in front of me and I'll make a masterpiece. Like, yeah, Ella could turn anything into... She was the original diva, right? I mean, like... She could belt anything. And it was amazing. And she had that chemistry and she had that smile and that, you know, her and Louie were, were doing these beautiful duos together. Billy was, it was feel and it was pain and it was struggle and it was rasp. And you know what I mean? Like Billy was, they were just Raw. raw. Thank you. Raw. They were just so different. What I did not know, what I love is that so January 16th 1928 was when Benny Goodman had his famous Carnegie Hall concert it's like the most famous jazz concert of all time did you know that that yeah. same night at the Savoy which is a massive a huge jazz club theme. yeah yeah Chick Webb and Count Basie had a big band off oh Ella Ella and Chick Webb versus Count Basie and and Billy, Billy. They ended up splitting, like certain magazines said that Ella won. Like, it's not, it's fucking jazz. What it, you don't win jazz. Even right. when <laughs> we were in high school and we were in jazz competitions, it felt so stupid. It was like, what are we, like, we're judging this? <laughs> what the fuck are we doing?
1: I just thought it was hilarious when you'd get best instrumental solo. Yeah, it's like. Twitter, you know, for like high school kid and you were yeah. <laughs>
0: It's pretty sad when the high when the when the instructors are like, "Here yeah. you go," and the students are like, oh, this is weird, man."
1: And honestly, it came down to in high school, it came down to like, "Oh, it's because I can play more weird shit than you can play. Like, my shit's weirder than yours, because that's what would win the solo for
0: singers for us. Which our group was called Singers. It came down to the fact that we had Emily Braden. That's <laughs> what it came down to." <laughs> <laughs> She is very soon after this dropped from Basie's band. And the reason that she's dropped is because at this point she is a full on alcoholic. She is also a heroin off and on addict. I'll say she's not doing it all the time, but she definitely has a problem. If you're ever doing heroin, you have some sort of problem, right? Yeah. She's still massively talented though. She is very soon after Basie drops her. She's picked up by Artie Shaw's band artie shaw is this great band leader she becomes the first black woman in a white band led band touring the first to go through the south black singer with a white band going through the south it goes exactly how you'd expect she ends up leaving the tour after a while because she's being treated how southerners treat you which by the way, I love, I have one quote from her that I'm going to read off that kind of explains the person Billy was and why I am so in love with her. After she left, she was making a point to say that Northerners were no better than Southerners. And this is the quote from Billy Holiday. I'm going to probably have to change one specific word around because she does say it a couple of times <laughs> down South. I can dig this kind of stuff, but I can't take it in New York The sheriff in Kentucky was at least honest. A good cracker says I don't like them, period. Some just say I don't want to socialize with you. They don't say that behind your back. They tell it right to your face and you know it. A cracker just wants you to clean up their house or take care of their kids and get the hell out. Even when they insult you, they do it to your face. That's the only way they can let you know they're superior to you. They might die and leave you all their money, but somewhere in the fine print, in the will, they're going to let you know that you were a good, Mm -hmm. you're still there, Mm -hmm. The sheriff in Kentucky called that to me to my face The big deal hotels and agencies in New York They were the ones to give me the fat shove behind my back So she ends up leaving the tour She tries to do some shows up north But even up north Like they're not wanting her to eat with the rest of the band They're like offering her these nice suites with room service But it's really just so she won't go down and socialize Mm -hmm. Shit that's pissing her off So she leaves Just stays in New York and keeps uh, doing clubs in New York again. 1939, she signs a deal with Columbia, which is a very big record company at this point. Gigging in Harlem, like I said. At this point in time, she's introduced to this very, very somber song based on a poem written by a Jewish guy in New York. Yeah. A song called Strange Fruit. So Billy's father had just recently passed away of pneumonia. She held a big grudge, her and her dad weren't even that close, but she held a very big grudge towards society for her father's death because she felt very strongly that if her father had proper healthcare, which black people didn't get, that he would have lived. She basically sees it as a metaphorical lynching Uh. and she uses all of that pain to build this very, very powerful message of her performance at the club she's frequenting. So whenever she sings the song which is every night that she performs at this club, she has all the waiters and waitresses stop serving. All the house lights go down. There's one small direct spotlight on her. She sings the song and when she's done she walks off stage and the people that are clapping when the lights come back on, she's off stage. So it's not even like a praise for singing it. It's not about the performance, it's about the song.
2: To dry up is a strange and
0: bitter. It's like. I- one of the first real big performance art jazz things. We all know the song Strange Fruit. It's pretty disturbing. It's a fucking tough yeah. listen. And that makes it even tougher. Nowadays that is with the exception of one other song what she's most known for. The only other one that she's known for so this is kind of funny. When Billy does get money, she doesn't end up being able to keep it because she's (laughs) a drug addict and drug addicts do not keep money. One of these times when she does have money, she helps her mom start a restaurant in New York City. And one of these nights she's out of money and she goes into the restaurant asking her mom to give her money or, you know, take money from the register of the restaurant and give her money and her mom won't do it. And they get in this huge argument in front of everybody. And it ends with Billy yelling, God bless the child that's got her own. And walking out the door. God bless the child. that's where she got the (laughs) idea for God bless the child. I didn't know the story behind (laughs) that one. (laughs) Those are the two songs she's most known for, Strange Fruit and God Bless the Child. At this point in time, it becomes a whirlwind of fame. It becomes a whirlwind of drugs. It's this very, very ugly... I've talked about enough depressing crap on the podcast the last few I'm not going to basically what was going on is she got busted for drugs and went to jail she took all the flack even though it wasn't just her it was her and her all of her band it was her and her husband at the time and one of her bandmates. she took it all she's like it was me it's my drugs that's just the type of person she was and when she got out she was still addicted to drugs and what would happen is is the cops knew that she was addicted to drugs So they would show up at all of her shows. Harass her and get her. Yeah. Exactly. She spends a lot of years in and out of trouble with the law, addicted to drugs. She eventually does die of cirrhosis of the liver. That's super young
1: too. Alcohol and drugs. Shit. I said Gene Harris was young, but this is... Sorry, I'm jumping ahead on your...
0: Yeah. No, you're good. You're good. She dies at 44 in 1959. She died in New York City. She was a bit of a mess. But she got to tour Europe, which was her main goal. She has one Carnegie Hall concert, which is one of the most renowned concerts of all time where she does three curtain calls and she pulls a John Davis. At the end of the third curtain call, she literally walks off stage and passes the fuck out. She literally gave it all. And that was Billy, man. Billy was was not Ella. Billy was a mood. Hmm. Billy was my kind of singer. If Ella was pre-Aretha... Billy was pre-Cobain. That's kind of the way I see it. She was haunted. She struggled with her fame. I don't want to make her struggles in comparison to anybody like a Kurt Cobain because they were incredibly unfair, her struggles. Most of her struggles happened because she was a black woman in the 30s and the 40s. A lot of demons and uh, I absolutely love her for it. (laughs) And that's that's the story of Billie Holiday. Jesus, man.
1: <laughs> man. I don't yeah. So there's several versions of her childhood. The route that I was more familiar with was not cleaning houses of rich white people when she was 12 years old. It was after she dropped out of school, she found a job running errands at a brothel.
0: She did that too. She did both. Ah. And then she
1: eventually got arrested for prostitution.
0: Yeah, she was a, at one point she was, they called it a $20 call girl, Mm. which to where she said, yeah, I'm a $20 call girl. I'd much rather be paid 20 bucks for sex than just give it away for free. She was just she Dude. was a fucking yeah gangster man like <laughs> OG. She was she has a couple books. You can find direct quotes from her where she's just she doesn't hold anything back. Man, God bless her. You know who she reminds me of? Who's that? Tupac. Except for she actually lived that life. Like he did too. Except it wasn't an act. He did yeah. too.
1: The amount of black influence on both these genres. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think hip hop and rap were just 60, years later Yeah, the same outlet for the same shit the same struggles uh, yeah. being brought to light my
0: recommendations as far as listening to billy 1956 is lady sings the blues is the easy that's the easy pick it's an b- amazing album it's got i must have that man strange fruit god bless the child love me or leave me uh it, it's essential billy holiday it is beautiful it is amazing However, if you want real, the Billie Holiday experience, the Billie Holiday feel, I would go for Lady in Satin. Go listen to Lady in Satin. She is deep into her alcoholic struggles, her drug addiction. She's a little weaker. At this point when she recorded this, she had lost a lot of weight. Health wasn't great, but every single sentence she sings you feel in your bones like we talked about with jazz or country or that sort of thing it's not till you're older that you really feel it everything that she sings in that album she's feeling it so those would be my two recommendations for billy and honestly you're not gonna go wrong like yeah yeah make yourself a martini pour yourself a scotch on a friday night maybe not just like strange fruit because then you'll be depressed and you'll just want to go to bed. (laughs) There are a few more powerful songs than Strange Fruit, right?
1: I mean, it's a very honest, emotional look and condemnation of racism. Mm -hmm. It's a hard listen. It's disturbing. I think those are all good reasons to listen to it. But yeah, you're right. If you're looking for a casual evening listen, or even not even casual, but looking for an enjoyable evening of
0: music listening, maybe don't start with that one. (laughs) I think it's one of the greatest songs ever written. I yeah. I loved Billie Holiday before. After studying for this episode, she's one of my favorite artists of all time. I'm completely in love with her, and yeah, that's Billie Holiday, man. I'll admit, she falls off
1: my radar. I don't think I've thought about Billie Holiday for 20 years.
0: Yeah, I th- well, she's kind of in that no man's land of it's right before the big band stuff hits. Yeah, Ella really. Not purposely, but Ella really ended up kind of biting off of her because she just got Ella was just so much bigger.
1: The stage presence, just the persona, the yeah, the diva. I mean, I know I think most people would like consider Aretha the the first real like soul diva, but like Ella had that that air about her. Yes, and I like the way that you compare Billy to like like a Kurt Cobain kind of a
0: a, a artist. Yeah. Um, she was an artist. And you know that, and she wrote too, man. You know, like Lady Sings the Blues, Billie Holiday wrote yeah. that. God Bless a yeah. Child, Billie Holiday wrote that. Wrote that's that. an insanely yeah. good song that everybody has covered. <laughs> She's raw. Yeah. Sven, that's our jazz episode. That's our jazz. We did it. Next time you're going first. Yeah, I should have gone first so we could have ended it on an upper. <laughs> huh. <laughs> My bad. We but ended you know with what? Strange Fruit. Here's she <laughs> Here's your upper. Join us next week because next week we've got two episodes for you and they both feature one of the most beautiful people we know in Carrie Kirkland. We're going to do a listener-supported episode with her where we go over one of the hardest albums to go over there is. And then we're going to talk about her new album as well. Yeah. Her new album, If, When You Go, we are going to talk to her about it. Do a little bit of an interview. Talk about the fucking power lineup on that album. Good God almighty. Damn. Um, Lots to talk about next week with Carrie and Sven. Once again, I get you two weeks in a row, Sven. I I am spoiled. Yay! Sven, there's one person in my life that I want to talk jazz with, and it's you, my man.
1: Dude. Anytime, man. I'll talk any music with you, man.
0: Verse, Versecourseverse at Versecourseverse verse, pod that works for Instagram and YouTube. Yeah, go over to our YouTube. Everybody, go listen to some jazz, man. Yeah, jazz is just it's just good for the soul. Go listen to some fucking Gene Motherfucking Harris, man. So much good jazz out there. Everybody, take care. Stay cool, Daddy O. Good night and good luck. Mwah. <laughs>
2: Mama, man. Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. for me hell. but God